Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Last week I started with the basketball analogy. This week I'm going to start with the basketball analogy because basketballs. I love basketball. But 1966, the NCAA championship. This was no ordinary game. Texas Western College out of El Paso was going to face the University of Kentucky. And if you know anything about the University of Kentucky, they were coached by the famous coach Adolph Rupp. Actually, the arena today is called the Rupp Arena. Uh, He's one of the most successful basketball coaches of all time. From 1930 to 1972, he had four national championships, 876 wins, and he was nicknamed the Baron of the Bluegrass, Adolph Rupp. So if you know anything about college basketball, and especially back in that time, Kentucky is one of the huge powerhouses in basketball. It's like basketball royalty. It's probably the most successful college programs in basketball of all time, maybe next to UCLA or North Carolina or Duke. Now, Texas Western College, tiny little school in El Paso, was coached by a young man named Don Haskins. He had very little resources. He did not have the recruiting power that Kentucky did. Now, here's why the game was so important. You may not know this. This was the first time that a basketball team started five black players. They would not have five black players start. So so Texas Western started five black players. Um, Adolph Rupp would not recruit black players. He only had white players. Okay, so there's the, the racism issue going on, civil rights But here you have the most powerful college basketball team in history, the Kentucky Wildcats. And then you got Texas Western with a young coach. And so nobody expected Texas Western to do anything. They thought, okay, Kentucky's going to roll over them. And so here's what happened. During the game, Texas Western forward and team captain Harry Flournoy left the game with an injury and their center got in foul trouble. So there's a problem there. Now here's what happened. Overcoming insurmountable odds, Texas Western went on to beat Kentucky 72-56 to and win the national championship that year. Okay? There's actually a movie I think Disney made about it that's got that. Um, And so you could say... This was a David and Goliath story. The tiny little college overcoming the big, huge basketball program. And all the drama of the the racism and civil rights and all of that stuff coming up with this this huge story. Now, you don't ever have had to read your Bible to know the term David and Goliath. People in our culture, when you say, We're going to face the giant or face Goliath or David and Goliath. What do people know that maybe have never read the story? Little shepherd boy has five stones and he slings them and knocks the giant down 
And the moral of the story is what? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's, that's the story, right? So isn't the story of David and Goliath about how we need to face our giants? We need to have courage. We need to have bravery. We need to be like David and just kill the giants in our lives. Well, throughout history, people have had some... Am I cut, cutting in and out, or is it a little bit? Okay. Let me just make sure that the batteries are good here. Uh, okay. Well, I can't see because they're not... Well, I'll just keep talking and we'll, we'll just figure it out. So there's been some wild interpretations of the David and Goliath story over the years. Some wild allegories. Um, some people have tried to press the elements in the stories to give symbolism. For example, the five smooth stones um, all represent different things. The first stone is for confidence. The second stone is for bravery. The third stone is for ingenuity. The fourth stone's for resourcefulness, and so you've probably heard sermons where the pastor, you know, goes on and on about the five smooth stones, and nowhere in the text does it say what they are. Um, here's the problem. Not necessarily the problem, but the issue. We can get so caught up in a story that's so familiar. David and Goliath. You know, the life of David is what we're studying. That's the one story that everybody knows, that we can become so over-familiar with it that, number one, we can just tune it out. Or number two, I could preach this text in a way that's not faithful to why it's here. A lot of pastors preach the David and Goliath story as a how-to. Here's how you kill your giant and face insurmountable odds in your life. Here's five steps. Five stones. Here's five steps of how you do it. Have courage, have ingenuity, have resourcefulness. You know, I could do that. Now, here's the problem with that approach. I'm setting you up for failure. Because here's the, here's the reality. You and I are not David in this story. You and I are Israel in this story. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment here. Because if I just say to you, be like David and go kill your giants, two things are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is some of you are going to be overconfident in your own ability, and you're going to go out there and think you can do it in your strength. Okay, I'm going to go kill my giants. You're going to be overconfident. You're going to be prideful. Some of you are going to be like, I have too many giants, I can't even begin to think about killing them. I feel defeated already, Pastor Sean. I don't need one more step to tell me how to kill the giants in my life. I have enough. I'm already feeling defeated. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to shatter some paradigms that maybe you've thought about this story because oftentimes we are so man-centered in our approach to reading the Bible that we think we're the main character. We must be David. No. David was a unique man of God at that time. And so, really, we are Israel in this narrative. So, I want to begin by asking a question. And you don't have to answer this out loud, obviously. And, Tarina, can you check and see why we're not advancing? Maybe this is out of batteries, I don't know. Oh, there it goes. Have you ever been so paralyzed with fear 
that you felt helpless or intimidated almost to the point that you thought you would die? Have you ever been so frightened or so helpless you wondered if you would ever survive? Anybody ever felt that helpless or that scared? I have. Many of you have heard this story many times before, but back in 2009, our church went on a mission trip to Nicaragua. And if you know anything about what happened in that trip, here's, here's what happened. Okay, so some of you may not have heard what happened to us. Okay, we were in three different buses, and there was about, there was, there was like six churches that came together from Colorado, and we, we took a bus out to this remote village to do medical missions, and it came time for the mission trip to be over, and we were going to get the buses, and we were going to take a six-hour bus ride back to the main town of Managua, where the missionary compound was. And so we get word that we can't leave because the Sandinistan rebels had set up a blockade in the town that was about 30 miles away, and they weren't letting anybody out. And so we were waiting for a military escort to come escort us out. So the military escort came. It was one guy in a Jeep. (laughs) He said, it's good to go. So we followed him into the town, and so... It was kind of weird. I'd never experienced anything like this, but there were slaughtered cows on the side of the road. That was kind of their way of making a point. So, like, as you were getting into the village, into this little town, a bunch of slaughtered cows. And so we stopped, and there was, like, a little market, and we got out. And um, then all of a sudden, we were rushed back into the vehicles. And we were told, I was in the very first vehicle, I was in the very first bus, and I was the very first person behind the bus driver on, on this side. Okay, And we were told, leave your windows up, do not make eye contact, because they could throw sticks or stuff inside the bus. Okay, So we get to this point where there's all this commotion going on, and I look over to my side, and probably about 20 to 15 feet away are about 100 Sandinistan rebels with machine guns and machetes standing there. And I'm thinking to myself, my first thought is, they're going to take the women and children and rape them. And some of, the, some of the women from our group were in different buses. And so then one of the guys gets on the bus. And he looks around at us and he goes, gringos. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And so at that moment, I began praying. And I was brought to mind that passage of Scripture where Elijah's on the mountain. And remember that um, he's afraid because they're surrounded by the enemies. And the angel says, you know, open your eyes. You're, you're going to be okay. And so, and so I just had this overwhelming sense of peace in that moment that we were going to be okay. I just had this overwhelming sense of peace. And then there was some commotion and then talking, and then the mayor of the town came out, and then all this kind of stuff. And then finally the bus driver honked his horn, and it was like the parting of the Red Seas with Moses, and we went through. But that was a very scary moment in my life where I'm thousands of miles away from my family in the middle of the Nicaraguan jungle with a bunch of Sandinistan rebels wondering if we're going to get out of there alive. Now, that's a pretty dramatic experience, but I wonder if you've ever been paralyzed in fear because you were facing something that just seemed insurmountable. Now, let's recap from last week, okay? Because last week, David was anointed, 
not last week, thousands of years ago, but we looked at last week. David was anointed the king of Israel by Samuel. And if you remember what happened, Jesse parades all of his, bro- all of his sons out there, and then David's not even uh, invited to the party. He's back shepherding, and they finally bring the littlest, the runt, up. And so let's just go back to chapter 16. Let's look at verse 7. Very, very important. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. That's talking about Eliab, the firstborn. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is what Israel is faced with. They're going to be looking at outward appearance. They're going to be looking at something insurmountable, and they are going to try to put their trust in the wrong place. So, this is a long chapter, and we're going to read all of it tonight. But we're going to read it in chunks, because if you look at the way it's, it's kind of arranged thematically, dramatically. I think the ESV does a pretty good job with the paragraphs. There are six movements or six scenes that unfold in this narrative that all build to a climax. Okay, so we're going to look at six scenes of how this unfolds in chapter 17 tonight. But before we do that, here's the main idea. Here's the, here's the main theme, the big idea of the entire passage of Scripture here in, in 1 Samuel 17. God honors his name and saves his people through the weakness of his chosen king. God honors his name and saves his people through the weakness of his chosen king. So, let's read scene 1. And this is in verses 1 through 11. So, is everybody there? 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 11, scene 1. You ready? Scene one. Here we go. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
Now, I want to show you a word used to describe Goliath in the original language there. Verse 4, it says that he was a champion. A champion. I don't know what your translation says. The ESV calls him a champion. Really, the word means a man in the middle. A middle man. So, so think about the image here. What, what's going on, okay? You've seen this in movies before. Israel's on one side of the hill. The Philistines are on the other side of the hill. And there's a valley in between. So instead of Israel's army coming down and the Philistine army coming down and all these people getting killed in battle, what do they do? Let's settle this with your best guy and our best guy. Let there be a man in the middle, come down in the middle, and we'll have a substitute or a person that will fight for us, and we'll have a representative fight for us, and they'll fight it out to the death. And whichever one wins will be the servant. That way we can save bloodshed, and we'll just have the two champions, the two men in the middle, come and fight. Now, it's interesting how much description is given to Goliath here. Does anybody know what his height is in, like, modern dimensions nine foot nine inches that's a tall dude it's a big guy okay and he has all that armor coat of mail now interestingly enough okay the way it's described here that he had a coat of mail and all this bronze in somewhat eerie fashion in the original language Goliath is described as bronze or reddish, like a snake with scales. The original Hebrew almost pictures him as a bronze or red snake with scales like a snake. So I want you to think in your mind this towering giant who is symbolically dressed like a snake with his bronze reddish scales now this automatically to the original audience when they saw this and heard this in the original language when you think of a red bronze snake what should your mind go towards back to the garden of eden where the serpent tempted eve so this tall man overpowering man with this amazing armor that makes him almost look like a bronze snake is an imposing figure. But what is most important that the narrator tells us here is what comes out of his mouth. What comes out of his mouth in verse 10? The Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. That's a key word. The word defy shows up five times in this passage of Scripture. It means to taunt, to bring reproach, to sneer, to maybe even cuss out. Here's the problem. This is the issue, and you need to catch it. This giant is blaspheming the name of the Lord. He's taunting Israel and by extension, Israel's God. Now, how does Israel respond to this huge dude that comes out in the middle and starts taunting them? 
What does verse 11 say? When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Again, the original Hebrew language here. The word dismayed conveys the idea they were shattered or broken into pieces in terror. They're, they're shattered. It was a crushing fear. The word afraid meant that they were intimidated. So here's the picture at the end of scene one. Israel is in a pool of shattered fright and intimidation, shaking in their boots, and you have this snake-like giant blaspheming the name of the Lord. So, I want you to notice something. This is more than just a battle between two armies on a battlefield, a physical battle. This is a theological battle. This is a spiritual battle where the very honor and name and reputation of God are at stake. Now, what's the problem with Israel? They're shaking in their boots and nobody has stepped up to be the middleman for Israel. Who's the middleman for the Philistines? Goliath, he's down, in there. he's down in the middle of the valley. He's taunting them. He's their middleman. So the question for Israel becomes, who's going to be the middleman? Who's going to be the go-between? Who's going to be the representative or the substitute for Israel? Who's going to step up to the plate and say, I'll be the middleman? I'll be the champion? Okay, so let's go to scene two. Scene two is verses 12 through 27. And this is a long section, so let's read this. 12 through 27. And I want you just to notice the contrast from the very beginning here. Now David. Okay, now David. Now David was the son of an Ephatherite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, and left the sheep with the keeper, and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment, as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and all the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke by the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him and great riches and will give him his daughter and make his daughter's house free in Israel. 
And David said to the men who stood up, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. How does scene one end? Israel shaking in their boots. How does scene two begin? Now David. Now, what do we know from chapter 16 about David? What what did we learn last week? He's the anointed one. He is, in a sense, and I used this term last week, and don't be freaked out by it, he is the Messiah of that time for Israel. Messiah just means the anointed one. He is the anointed shepherd king. Now, if you remember last week, what are the two things I drew your attention to David when when Samuel anoints him? Number one, he's the littlest, he's the smallest, but number two, he's a shepherd. That was very important. And we see this again. What is David doing? We see it in verses 14 and 15. What do we see again? David was the youngest. And remember that word youngest can mean littlest. He's the runt of the litter. He's the littlest. And then verse 15, David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. He is a little, tiny, youngest shepherd, but he's the anointed king. So God chooses the foolish and the weak things of this world to shame the wise. That's what we looked at last week. David's still not invited to the party, even though he's anointed. He's still considered the littlest, the youngest. He's still out being a shepherd. And so dad, Jesse's nervous about his three oldest boys. Wants to know if, if, if they've been in battle, are they wounded, are they killed? What's going on? So what does he do? He sends David to check up on him. Go send him some bread. Go send him some food. And so David goes to see what's going on down at the battle. So this is the first time David shows up and sees Goliath, sees what's going on, hears the words out of Goliath's mouth. And David gives three speeches, and each of them show where his heart truly is. Look at verse 26. This is the very first time David speaks out loud in the Bible. And what comes out of the mouth of David? Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Where's David's heart? He is most concerned with God's honor. God's name, the reproach that's coming upon the living God. He's concerned that a pagan Philistine has been able to blaspheme and taunt and defy God's name, and nobody's done anything about it. It bothers David. Why isn't anybody standing up to this man who's blaspheming the living God? He's out there for 40 days blaspheming, taunting, cussing the living God out, and none of you guys are doing anything about it. 
So David knows immediately this is more than just a battle between two physical armies in the middle of a field. This is a theological issue because the very reputation and name and honor of God is on the line. And who's silent? Saul. Has Saul said anything? Has Saul said, I'll be the man in the middle, I'm the king? Has Saul said, this really bothers me that the name of the Lord is being blasphemed? No, Saul's shaking in his boots. Saul's afraid. So everybody's shattered in fear. Nobody's taken it upon themselves to stand up for the honor of the Lord. Nobody has said, I'm going to be the man in the middle. And so at this point, you might be a little confused thinking, well, why is David so upset that God's name's being blasphemed? Can't God take care of himself? Why is David so concerned that God's name's being taunted? Why is it such a big deal to David? Why is he so mad that the the name of the Lord is is being reproached by a, a Philistine? Well, let me ask you a question. If you're a believer in Christ, let me just ask you a very simple question. Do you desire to protect the honor of God's name so that his glory and majesty is not blasphemed or dirtied by those who oppose him? Are you concerned about the glory of God's name? Yes, God can take care of himself. But as believers, we should want the name of the Lord to be honored. What's the third commandment? Remember, Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of your Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What's Goliath doing? He's blaspheming the name of the Lord. He's taking the Lord's name in vain. He's taunting the living God. How does Jesus begin the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6? Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. It's all about the name of the Lord. Now, in our culture, names don't mean that much. My name's Sean, if you didn't know that. It's of an Irish origin. The English version is John. The German version is Johann. The Irish version is Sean. It's not seen. As I said growing up, if you call me seen, I may get obscene because I've been called that a lot. Now. In Hebrew, do you guys know what the word John? My name means the Lord is gracious. That's what John means. Okay, my son Aiden. He lives, he's lived up to his name, okay? Aiden can mean two things. The warmth of the home or little fire. <laughs> so, Zachary, our youngest son, he was born around Memorial Day in 2000, and his name means the Lord will remember. It comes from Zachariah, the Lord will remember. Now, Don, my wife, it's an old English name that means the sun's coming up. It's the morning dawn. So, we don't make much of names, but the Hebrew people, they were concerned about the name. All throughout the Old Testament, God shows His power through His name. Think about it. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You've set Your glory above the heavens. Now, the psalm could say this. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic are you in all the earth. Is there anything wrong with that? That's not what it says. 
O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now again, the psalmist could say, we trust in the Lord our God, but he says we trust in the name. Psalm 124.8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Jeremiah 10, verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. This entire battle between David and Goliath is about the name of the Lord. The honor of the Lord. Israel and Saul are paralyzed in fear on the sidelines and nobody standing up for the name of the Lord. And there's one man, David, who sees it. He's bothered by it. And basically David says, why in the world are you allowing this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the name of the Lord? He's dishonoring God's name. He's blaspheming God's name. This is unacceptable, and somebody must do something about it. Because David knows. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God's not going to share his glory with anybody else, especially a pagan Philistine that's blaspheming and intimidating God's people. So, Everyone else is paralyzed in fear. But David emerges as the one who's going to fight the battle. Because he knows it's a theological issue. The name of the Lord is being being blasphemed. Now, one thing that's interesting about the story of David, he must overcome two obstacles before he even gets to Goliath. He's got to deal with his older brother, Eliab, and he's got to deal with Saul. So you could say it this way. David has to deal with three giants in this story. Eliab's the first giant, Saul's the second giant, and then, Eli- and then Goliath's the real giant. Now, what do we know about all three of these guys? What did we find out last week about Eliab? Why did Samuel like Eliab and want to choose him as king? He was tall. What do we know about Saul? He was tall. What do we know about Goliath? He's really, really tall. So all three of these tall men become a nemesis to David. Tall, taller, tallest. Okay, Eliab, Saul, Goliath. Okay, so let's see the two giants, quote-unquote, David has to face before he even gets to Goliath. Okay, so let's, let's look at scene three. And I'm going to get a drink of water here real quick. Scene three, we've got um, verses 28 and 30. Okay, a little bit shorter. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? 
And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. What's Big Brother saying? You little pipsqueak. You should be back where you're supposed to be, watching the sheep, you little runt. I know why you've come down here. You just want to see this battle. But notice what Eliab does. He says, I know the evil of your heart. That's interesting. Can Eliab see into David's heart? Who's the only one that looks at the heart that we saw last week? God. And what did God say about Eliab? I've rejected him because the Lord looks at the heart, not outward appearances. So David is the man after God's own heart. He's the only one in this narrative that's concerned about the glory of God. And his older brother says, I know your motives. You have pure, you have impure evil motives. I know the evil in your heart. So in essence, you could say that Eliab is the first obstacle that David has to face even before he gets to Goliath. His oldest brother saying, you're an evil little pipsqueak. Now let me just ask you a question. Have you ever had someone question your pure motives? Have you ever had someone think they know what's in your heart? They lecture you or accuse you out of anger. How does that make you feel when somebody judges your heart? Now, there may be times where they're correct. But if you're doing the right thing and you're doing things for the glory of God and you, to the best of your knowledge, you have pure motives and, and you're, you're stepping forward doing the right thing, how does it feel to have someone question your heart? It's one thing to say, I don't like what you did. It's another thing to say, I can see what's in your heart and you have impure motives. So that's the first obstacle David has to face, is his older brother questioning his motives, saying, you have an evil heart. And what's David thinking to himself? I'm the only one out here that seems to have a care for the name of the Lord. Everybody else, you guys are all over here letting Goliath get, get, get away with it. I have a very pure heart because I want God's honor to be renowned here, and nobody's doing anything about it. Okay. Now, there's a second obstacle not only his older brother, but he has to get through Saul. Remember, Saul's still the recognized king, even though David has been anointed by Samuel. So let's look at scene four. This is verses 31 through 37. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. 
Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul overhears what David said and says, Come here, come here, David, let me have a talk with you. You're a little pipsqueak also. What gives you the right to think you can go out and fight this man of war who's this huge giant? You're a shepherd boy. You have no experience. You should not go out there and fight. And what does David say? Let me tell you a little story. When I'm out there in the fields and the bears and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, show up, I fought them off. I've killed lions. I've killed bears. I'm not this little runt that you think I am. Actually, the Lord has given me strength. And so what is David doing here? I'm not just saying that to get into to Saul's face. I mean, he's being a little sarcastic. But David trusted in God's provision in the past as confidence for God's provision in the future. What's David saying? God's been faithful to me in the past. God's never let me down in the past. God has equipped me. God has encouraged me. God has provided for me. I trust the living God, and I know that in the future, He's going to do the same thing. So my trust is in the Lord. He's never let me down in the past. He's not going to let me down in the future. I'm trusting in the Lord. And notice again that David's concern is that Goliath is defying the living God. And notice what title David uses for God. In verse 37, David says, The Lord. See it in all caps there, L-O-R-D? That's Yahweh. Yahweh. The covenant name of God. The great I Am. I want you to see the contrast between David and Saul. Do you see it? Where's been David's heart? What's been David's concern? David is totally focused on the name of the Lord, the power of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord. I've trusted in the Lord. The Lord's name is being defied. Nobody's doing anything about the name of the Lord. And what is Saul saying? Do we ever see Saul praying to the Lord? Do we see Saul concerned about the glory of the Lord? No, Saul does not have a heart for the Lord. So Eliab and Saul both were looking at outward appearances. What were they saying? You're too small. You have a bad heart. You have impure motives, David. What are you doing down here? And what's David saying all along? Nobody's doing anything about the glory of the Lord. I'm trusting in the Lord, and I'm going to go out and be the middleman. I'm going to go out there and face this uncircumcised Philistine that all of you are just letting continue to blaspheme the Lord. 
Okay, so those are the first two giants that, that David has to face. His oldest brother, Eliab, and Saul, who both came against him and said, you shouldn't be doing this. And David basically says, listen, I'm doing this because the Lord's on my side. Okay, let's look at scene five. Verses 38 through 40. Then Saul clothed David with his armor and put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in the hand, and he approached the Philistines. Do you see some symbolism going on here? Saul says, wear my armor. I'm the king, wear my armor. And David puts on the armor and is like, what? This is not fitting. This is not working. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out there without armor. And you may look at that and say, well, that's kind of crazy to go out there without armor. Remember how Goliath was described with all that armor and how huge he was? Here's, here's what's going on in this scene. David is rejecting the man-made armor of Saul. And he relies upon the weakness of a slingshot and five smooth stones. He's trusting in what God has provided in nature and not in the weapons of warfare. Iron and bronze and a coat of mail? No. I'm going to go down to the brook and I'm going to get five smooth stones and I got a slingshot. Now, this is counterintuitive. What would you be thinking? David, that's not a good battle strategy. Do you know how big that dude is? Do you know how much armor he has? I know you can't really fit into Saul's armor, but even if it's uncomfortable and it's kind of clanky, it's better than going out there without anything. This defies logic, and that's the point. What's God doing? God is choosing the weak little shepherd boy who's trusting in God's resources to do the impossible. I'm going to reject man-made armor. I'm going to reject. Why, why would David wear the armor of the king that God rejected? I'm not going to put his armor on. I'm going to go out in the trust of the Lord. How in the world could the true anointed King David wear the armor of the one whom God rejected? David goes out with spiritual protection as opposed to Saul's false protection. Okay, now we get to the part where everybody remembers. The climax, scene six. We've, we've led up to the climax here. Verses 41 through 53. Okay, this is, this is a long passage, but we'll read this. And the Philistines moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shuram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. He put it, and he put his armor in his tent. This is the climax of the story. In verse 45, we see that God saves through weakness. What is David's real weapon? What does he say to the Philistine in verse 45? You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. Remember I said all along this is about the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord being defied, the name of the Lord being blasphemed. And what does David say? You're coming with, with all these, these weapons. Here's my weapon, Goliath. I'm coming to you in the name of the living God. And that is enough. David is concerned with worship. Because here's the issue. David knows the Old Testament law. And let me ask you a question. What's the penalty for a blasphemer? Death by stoning. It's very important. Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Why do you think David killed Goliath with a stone? One stone. Okay. I said all along, this is a worship issue. David knows the law of God. He did what the Israelites were too scared to do. What should they have done with the blasphemer? Stone the blasphemer. It is God's law 
Whether he's a sojourner, whether he's a Philistine, whether he's an Israelite, the blasphemer needs to be stoned. Now, I love what Spurgeon said about this, okay, in in Spurgeon-esque way. I'll give you the quote. Mark you well that David did smite Goliath, and he smote him effectually not in the loins (laughs) or on the hand or on the foot, but in a vital point he delivered the stroke that laid him low. He smote him in the brow of his presumption on the forehead of his pride. There's a lot of ways you can stone a person. But David took that one sling and it did what? Right where the pride struck struck him down. The blasphemer is stoned. Now, these stones would have ranged in two to three inches in diameter. And many scholars believe that if David could have flung that about 150 miles an hour, like, you know, like, like a baseball, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty fast. So Goliath dies theologically by stoning because he blasphemed the name of the Lord. And that was David's biggest concern. Who's going to silence the blasphemer? Who's going to kill the blasphemer? I'm not going to go out there and start swinging a sword around. I'm going to stone him. And I'm going to trust in the Lord, and I'm going to sling that thing, and it's going to hit him right in the forehead. And notice what it says. It's sunk. (laughs) It's sunk. And then he cuts off his head with Goliath's sword. Kind of graphic, but he said he was going to do it. And then the Philistines run for their lives because their champion has been killed and beheaded by this puny little shepherd boy. End of story, right? Go be like David. Get your five smooth stones and muster up enough courage to go slay your giants. Here's five steps to help you do it. No. I want you to remember what I said at the very beginning. You and I are not David in this story. Who are we? We're Israel, okay? We are hopeless, fearful, paralyzed by sin, and there's no way in the world we can conquer the snake-like enemy of death. And we're like Israel, We don't properly honor God's name at times. We do cower in fear and intimidation when others profane His name. We don't speak up when we should. So, could Israel face this giant by themselves? No, they were weak. They were helpless. They were intimidated. They were despairing. But who overcomes? A small, seemingly weak, unarmed shepherd boy triumphs over a nine foot nine giant. David's personal victory 
was then gifted to the nation of Israel who didn't have to swing one sword. Did Israel have to fight? They were the recipients of the victory of the man in the middle who fought on their behalf. Here's the theology behind this narrative. Israel was too sinful and too intimidated and too weak to fight the battle. They needed a man in the middle to represent them to go fight the battle. In the same way, death, the devil, the world, our flesh, those are too powerful of an enemy for us to even begin to think that we can conquer. Do you know that we are faced with a Goliath? It's that giant red dragon called Satan whose scales reveal that he is both a murdering snake and a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Why was Goliath described as a snake? How is Satan described in the Bible? 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil's a powerful enemy. Revelation 12, 9 says, That great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We face an unholy trinity every day. Do you want to know what the unholy trinity is? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is too powerful. It will reel you in. Your flesh is powerful and will cause you to sin, and the devil is a real enemy that will tempt you. So you have a formidable triple giant that you're facing. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And there's no way possible you and I can fight these giants. So what do we need? If we're Israel in the story, what did Israel need? Israel needed a man in the middle. Who was the man in the middle? David, the anointed king. We need a man in the middle. We need a go-between. We need the true anointed shepherd king who will stand in the gap for us, who will be our representative, who will, through weakness and suffering, conquer the giants of death and sin and Satan once and for all by dying in the cross. It's no accident that David was the middleman. The king of Israel was the middleman who represented the nation of Israel and won the battle. Jesus is the one mediator that we need. 
Jesus is the only one qualified to fight the battles. Jesus is the only one that can conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus conquered through weakness. He conquered through the cross. And his victory becomes our victory. David's victory became Israel's victory. Did Israel have to fight? No, but did they benefit from the victory of David? Yes. Do we fight? No. We trust in the one mediator, and his victory becomes our victory. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. There is one mediator. I mean, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we all need Jesus as our middleman, as our mediator, to fight our battles, to defeat Satan, to conquer death, to conquer hell, to conquer sin, and his victory becomes our victory. All Israel had to do was to receive what David won for them. All we need to do is to receive what Jesus has won for us. And what did David's victory do to the Israelites? Do you see the change there? Look at verse 53. The people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. Okay, so because of who you are in Christ and by believing in what he's done to secure your victory, you now have the confidence to go out this week and face your giants. You will have giants. You will have hurdles. You will have obstacles. But the point is not be like David and go out and face them. The point is only Jesus can face your obstacles, and so trust in him. He's the only one that can fight your battles. And so instead of me challenging you with five steps to kill your giants, where you're the center of the story and you're David, the point of the story is, no, we're all Israel. We're weak, we're helpless, we're scared, we're fearful, we can't fight the battle, we trust in the mediator, we trust in the middleman, we trust in Jesus. He alone's the one that can fight the battles for us. But the Israelites were changed, they were excited, they had confidence because of what David did. Before, was anybody willing to go out there and face Goliath? What happened after David chopped off his head? Everybody has confidence now. We're going to go storm the gates of hell. I mean, they're, they're out there chasing them down. So David's victory gave them confidence to move forward as a nation. In the same way, Christ's victory gives us confidence to move forward. Jesus has won the victory on the cross. Satan has been defeated. And so we can go into the world and tell sinners that they too can be liberated and forgiven because of Jesus.
Before Goliath was killed, Israel was paralyzed in fear on the sidelines. But now that the enemy has been defeated, they're excited and can move forward. So it's time for us now to claim the victory that Jesus won and to rush forward into Satan's camp and plunder those who are in his grip by declaring victory through Jesus Christ. So, are you motivated with confidence in the power of the gospel because Jesus has won the victory? Submit to the true king today who's the only one that has the power to fight your battles and bring glory and honor to his name. So before tonight, you thought you knew the story of David and Goliath. But now you really know the story of David and Goliath. So, we are done a little early tonight, so this leaves room for a lot of great theological questions or conundrums to stump the pastor. Are there any questions or comments that you guys, or observations or clarifications you guys have tonight? Yes. Um, that he did it for 40 days? Yeah, 40, that's a good question, he did it for 40 days. 40 is a number in the Bible that represents judgment. How many days did it rain with Noah in the flood? 40 days and 40 nights. How many years did the Israelites wander in the wilderness? 40 years. How long did... God give Nineveh a chance to repent? 40 days. So, I don't know if there's, like, I don't know what the symbolism is there. I just know that 40 days, it's probably a harbinger or symbolism that Goliath's going to be judged. It's kind of a symbol of impending judgment. The 40 days. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, one, yeah, I mean that's, that's a good way to, to think about it. David was the only one in this entire narrative who truly knew the Lord of Israel, or at least showed that he had an understanding of who God was. 
But as he talked about the faith and trust he had in God, who's the only person in the entire narrative that says anything about God in his name? David. When Eliab speaks, it's, David, you got bad motives. When Saul speaks, it's, you're too young. When, when Goliath speaks, it's blaspheme. When Israel's not speaking, but they're over there shaking in their boots. So, so everybody besides David does not have faith and trust in the living God. They're living in fear and paralysis and terror. And they don't, whether they claim to know the God of Israel, by their actions they're showing they don't truly have trust in the God of Israel. David is the man after God's own heart who shows that. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're, what you're saying? Yeah, we need to be very careful when we read the Old Testament that we don't read ourselves into the characters and make it about us. We need to see Christ. Because Jesus says that the entire Bible is about him. And it's very clear that David is a type and shadow of Jesus. I mean, you, you clearly see it. He's the middleman that came and fought the battle on behalf of the Israelites. Jesus is the mediator that comes and fought the battle against Satan, the world, and the, de- the, the flesh on behalf of his people. And so trust in the victory that the mediator won to give you the confidence of the life of faith. Um, but there are things you can take from the Old Testament that can be personal applications to us related to, to, to David, especially as a, char- as, a, as a person. I, saw, I thought I saw a hand over here. Was there a question over? Brent. Lack of faith because he picked up five? How did he know? Well, I don't know if the Bible says he knew he was going to hit him with the first one. I'm just, I think we need to make sure we don't overanalyze the five and say, well, because he picked up five, he didn't have faith. He picked up five because he probably thought, well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say why he picked up five. If he picked up five, he could have thought, you know, I've, I've got pretty good aim, and God's going to give me the victory. And if I miss on the first one, I got another one. So he winds it up, and the first one's like, Droom. okay, I guess I don't need four now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the point is, I mean, some pastors make such a big deal about the five stones that they, over, they overemphasize the five stones to where, to me, that's incidental in the story. Five stones, who cares how many there were? The point is, the man in the middle, David, killed Goliath by stoning him because he was a blasphemer. Whether it took the first stone or the fifth stone, he did it, and God, God, yeah, put those in your finger, yeah, pick up five, yeah.
So like the difference between faith and presumption or faith and foolishness? So let me, okay, okay, so, I'm thinking of George Michael here, because you gotta have faith, I mean, so like, you gotta have faith, I don't know why that song came into my head, but that's what he said, you gotta have faith, okay, you hear people say, you gotta have faith, just have faith, okay, let me ask you a question, does the Bible ever quantify how much faith you need? Okay. There is one parable that talks about the faith of a mustard seed. We need to be very careful that we don't quantify faith and say that, man, you need to have this intense faith. If you have it, you need, you know, you got to have faith, you got to have this intense faith. Because what one person may say is, you know what? My faith's like that, that small and I'm barely hanging on. And you're just making me feel guilty because I don't have this intense faith like obviously you do because you're the super Christian that has this great faith. It is not the intensity or the amount of our faith. It's the object of our faith, and that's Jesus. It's who our faith is in. What was that? Yeah, believing, believing God. Yeah and, yeah, and so... I don't know where, why, why we got off on this tangent. I, just need to, I think you just need to be very careful when you tell somebody, you just need to have more faith. No. You need to trust the promises of Jesus who is the one that holds you in the grip of his hands even when you feel like you don't have faith. Because remember that dad whose son wanted to be healed and he said, Lord, you know, increase my faith or help my faith? Sometimes that's what we have to pray. I don't have faith today. I need, I need you to increase my faith. It's not my, if it was my faith that kept me going, I would be lost all the time. It's who my faith is in, Jesus. He's the one that holds me. He's the one that has me in his grip. Is there a question on Facebook? Okay. Okay. How did Israel know What? I don't know how to answer that question. There needs to be, I'm an English teacher at times, there needs to be a direct object to the question. How did Israel know, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you gotta fill in the blank. What, how they know what? Anyway, <clears throat> Any, anything else tonight? Well, that's a good question because it could have been so fast that the stone went through the bronze helmet into his skull. Or there could have been a gap right there. I mean, either way you look at it, okay, let's say his skull had a little gap right there. Or let's, I mean, let's say his, um, his helmet had a gap between like, you know. Or let's say it came all the way down. Either way, it's pretty miraculous that it went dook, right there. Even if it came through that small spot or if it went through, through the arm or it went through the helmet, either way, God directed, I believe God supernaturally directed that, that pebble 
at the velocity that it was to go exactly to his head. Like Spurgeon said, could have got him in the, you know, could have got him in the loins. <laughs> it could have got him in the hand. It could have got him in the knees. But it's boom, got him right in the head because the blasphemer needed to be stoned. It needed to be stoned. I mean, it could have been like poetic justice would have been like in his mouth because of his blaspheming. So I think the face represents mouth, head, pride, all that kind of stuff. So, sorry, Heather. <laughs> Okay. How did Israel know what was happening with what? With David? Well, I mean, the, the text tells us Israel was up here, Philistines were up here, there's a valley below. You can picture it in your mind. You've seen movies like this. I mean, you can picture Goliath out there. You can picture David up there. You know, they've got the... You know, like the Old West showdown there, you know, and it's like Goliath comes out with his black hat, David comes out with his white hat, and no, I'm just joking. I mean, you can picture, I mean, you can picture it in your mind, the two champions coming and everybody watching. I put those sound effects just in, you know, I'm sure it was more dramatic music, you know, like, like, like some type of orchestral type cinematic theme music that was playing while it's I'm just joking. All right, anything else? Is there more clarification on how did Israel know what was going on? Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then um, I'm not sure exactly what we're doing next week. I think we're doing um, chapter 18, where David and Jonathan have, have their friendship. Um, we're not going to go through every... We're not going to go through every chapter just because it, it may take a long time, but I'm picking and choosing the major events because we have to go th- all the way through David's life to where at the very end, like even after his kids get old and Absalom and all that stuff happens and then he basically you know, gives, gives the, the temple, you know, Solomon builds the temple after, he, after, after David's gone. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. And, and Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the middleman. You are the mediator. You are the one, the true anointed king, the true son of David who fought our battles on the cross. You defeated Satan. You defeated death. And Lord Jesus, you continue to fight our battles for us on a daily basis. And so we don't fight the battles in our own flesh or with man-made weapons, but through trust in you. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to trust in you. Help us to have, like David did, a, a, a passion for your name, for your, for your fame, for your glory. And that it would bother us when you're blasphemed, when you are spoken ill of. And so, Lord, help us to be those that really hallow your name, as the, the Lord's Prayer says. And so, just give us that passion for your name. Help us to go out in the victory, Jesus, that you've won for us. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.